All right. Let's get right into it. We're going to pick up where we did last week. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out, I don't know if you all knew this or not, but today is Brett Gaylor's birthday, and he would love it if on his way out today, he's got to take off right after service, but if you guys would form a line, he wants to hug everybody to say happy birthday to him. So don't let him escape without a hug. He would very much appreciate it. Look how red he's turning right now. I don't know if that's embarrassment or anger. It could be either way, but Ashley requested this for him, so you turn your attention towards her. So... Anyway, so let's pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series called The Alternate Reality, and it's getting our minds set on what God said. There's two things that we need to consider. What God said, what I see. Which one matters more? Ultimately, what God said. If God had not said, you and I would not be here, right? And therefore, we are able to depend on everything and every promise that He has given as a result of the promise giver is faithful to His Word. Are you? Let's just be honest. There are times that we're not, right? Maybe we have good intentions, but we have failed people, let people down, whatever, whatever the excuse may be. But that is a characteristic of which is upon this earth only, not the characteristic of God. And that's where we're going. The reality is, is when we look at the definition here, it's the world of the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. Have you guys heard the term blind faith? Do you realize that there is no such thing in the body of Christ? Our faith is not blind like we close our eyes and we just hope it's real. I remember a few years ago, I saw a Facebook post by somebody, and it was showing a, a list of all these different religions. And it was a grandmother who probably had good intentions because she's like, I don't ever want to push my beliefs onto my grandchildren. I want them to decide for themselves what is true. Now, what's the flaw in that statement? Nobody decides what is true, right? It's either true or it's not. So in that list of all the different religions, Christianity is getting lumped in there. It only matters... If there is one that is true. If not, then she's correct. You believe what you want. doesn't make any difference. It has no bearing on the eternity that you will spend and the rest of your life today. But if there is a truth in there, then we should know it. We have to know it. And it always comes back for us of what has God said. What is His Word? Because that's the only thing that matters. Nothing else matters except what God has said and what God has promised. So when he says, fear not, for I am with you, what do you think he meant by that? He meant to fear not, because he is with us, right? When he said that greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, what do you think he meant by that? I know, this is great. Should we break down the Greek? Would that be fun? No, it would not be fun. It's never fun. And you don't even have to, and that's my point is we have complicated this thing, and we come near Him with our lips, but our hearts are not sold out. They're sold out in the fact that we do love the Lord, but we don't truly believe everything. The most confident that we are on this earth is in our salvation, which is bizarre to me. And not only us, but those who we would not consider part of the faith are very confident in their eternity. And you've seen it, just like I have, is, you know, heaven gained another angel. Just in case there's confusion... We are not mass-producing more angels. There's a finite number. I don't know what it is. It's a lot, but you die, you don't become one, okay? Just in case there was confusion. Hey, look down on us from up there. Say hi to Grandpa for me. Why are you so confident that he and Grandpa is up there? Can we be? Sure. But how do we get there? It's strictly through the Scriptures. Without that, any idea about God is just an opinion. We have to have some standard to apply. God has revealed himself to us through his word, right? So if that is true, then we go to there to find out how God moves, who he is, what he expects, all of these things, right? So do we get to make up what we want? No. Does it make any difference what you believe? No, not if it's not grounded in truth. Truth does not change. Now let's look at this. John chapter 17. This is the truth that Jesus had to say. As he's praying to the Father, verse 13, he says, But now I have come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may, give my, or may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 
I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. How many times do we say truth there? A bunch. Do you think it matters? Absolutely. So what did Jesus say? As he's praying to the Father, he said, the world hates them because they hated me. I pray that you don't take them out of the world, but you protect them in it. In other words, we are setting things aside to be more like Christ. Not in a moral way, but to be more like him in every way. You see, what we do is we try to do a lot of behavioral modifications. We try to be better, do better. But as we talked about last week, and we'll get there a little bit today, is that you don't have to try. We need to stop trying to do certain things. We need to start being who we've been created to be. By being that, the behaviors will change naturally. We were created in His image. We are separated from the world. We are not a part of this worldly system. But where are our, is all of our attention? Here. We get really spun up in the economics. We get really spun up in the politics. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't matter. Don't misunderstand me. But we get, if we would put half the amount of energy as we do into those types of things, into spreading the gospel, imagine what would change. What if we really believe that when believers lay hands on the sick that they recover? And we did this crazy thing where we went around to sick people and we laid hands on them. What kind of crazy kooky talk is that? But we don't do that. What do we do? We bring them to the church. We wait for the altar call. Did Jesus? Did the apostles? Yet we do that. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Verse 3. It says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought, also, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now we know that being created in his image is a, a reference to being a representative of him. We were, we were created as imagers on this earth. Adam was the first imager on this earth. It's not so much what he looks like. Don't get hung up into that. How many fingers does God have? All right, who cares? We know he's got one because he wrote with it, right? Y'all with me? Try to keep up. Am I going too fast? Is it too early? Do we need to sing another song? Would that help? Quit nodding your head back there. It's my turn now. But the thing is, is like we get caught up in that. We're like, well, wait a minute. Adam was his representative on this earth, given dominion and authority to expand the garden. Did he do it? No, he failed miserably. But since that time, when we were born again, we are now recreated into the image of God. We are, were dead. We are now alive, risen with Christ. And so now we are going around representing him on this earth. Therefore, what he did, we should do. What he said, we should say. What he knew, we should know. And I know many of us get hung up like, but that's Jesus. He's God. Yeah, but he wasn't here. He forsook his Godhead, came down as a man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. No miracles took place until the moment that the Holy Spirit came upon him. Is that changed today? No. In fact, he told his apostles, he said, listen guys, I'm going. I want you to hang out in Jerusalem. Don't leave. You've got a mandate, but don't leave. Because you need what I have. And when he comes, he will be a comforter. He'll lead you into all truth. And you will be empowered from on high. So what did they do? They actually did what he said. What a concept. If I told you, so listen folks, if we would just come together and we just stayed right here, it's going to take 10 days. 10 days. Right here. Then the Holy Spirit's going to come upon us and we will do everything that the apostles did. How many of us would camp out here in times of prayer and worship and whatever for 10 straight days? The reality is, not a lot of us. Well, we've got work, we've got families. Yes, all of that's true. Maybe they did too, we don't know. We know there was more than just the 12 11, I guess, because there was 120 at one point. So what was going on? They waited and waited and waited. But here's the thing. Did they know it was going to be 10 days? 
Not according to Scripture. We don't know that for sure. Were they thinking, oh, the Feast of Pentecost is about to be fulfilled? I don't know. But they just knew they were to wait, and so they did. You see, they were obedient to the point that they, God has empowered them with everything that they needed so that they could be His imager on this earth and carry that legacy. Because they knew what Jesus said because they heard him say it. And they knew what Jesus did because they watched him do it. And so from there, they were his eyewitnesses and testimony on the earth. And that is what we have captured in Scripture. The first four books of the, or the New Testament are eyewitness testimony of what Jesus said and what he did. And how he fulfilled prophecy. And all the things that made him Messiah. Unique and set apart. But he wasn't born with all knowledge. Wasn't born with all power. He wasn't born as the Son of God. Yet he was. No, I know it's confusing. But he grew in that knowledge. Look at Luke chapter 2 verse 51. It says, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, I know I've read this several times, but we've got to get this. If you are God, do you need to grow in anything? No. Now, Jesus was God. Don't, I know it's confusing. I know there's really no good analogy a person can give to make any of this work. It's kind of like the Trinity. None of them work really well. Okay, it's not a three-cord rope. It's not an egg and you got the shell. Forget all that noise. You never will comprehend any of this. But what we know is that according to God's word, he asked questions, he grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, and he grew in favor with God and men. Do you need to grow in favor with God if you are God? Wrap your head around that one. So he grew in his understanding of who he was and the will of his father. He grew in his understanding of how God worked. He grew in his understanding of the authority that had been given him, even his positioning with God, that he was here as Messiah. How did that happen? Was there lights from heaven? Did an angel come down and say, Jesus, let me tell you what you're about to do? To our knowledge, the answer is no. But what do we know that he did? He read the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He read them. He studied them. And when he did that, he's seeing how God had faithfully moved in the lives of his people. And that every time God said he was going to do something, he did. Even to the detriment of Israel. Because God said if, that, if you aren't obedient to this covenant, you will be cursed. Did God keep his promise? Absolutely. God also said, I will never let you be taken down to nothing. I will always keep a remnant. Did he keep his promise? Yes. Is there anything that we read in the Old Testament of which God said he was going to do that he did not do? The answer is no, there's nothing. Are there things yet to be fulfilled? Yes, there are. So as Jesus is reading this, he's reading about Yahweh who is always faithful. Everything he said, every promise he made, he did. So to do what Jesus did, we have to think like he thought. And we have to see like he saw. And what you see will determine the real you. What is real to you? Do we see what Scripture says or do we see what the world says? Now what did we go into last week? We talked about as we're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God told Moses, send out spy from every tribe. And Moses said, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go into the mountains. And you're going to go over here, and you're going to go, go to the north, south. Go around this place. And they were gone for 40 days. And what did they see? They saw incredible land. And it wasn't just camps. It was fortified cities, which means there are houses there. We don't need a construction crew. We're going to move right in. It's awesome. The subdivision is built. They just ran fiber. It's fantastic, Okay. The crops have been planted. The vineyards were already there. The animals have been grown. Like, you just pick up this piece of cake. All you got to do is go in there and take it. And did God say to go in there and take it? Yeah. He said, this is the land I've given you. I've sworn it to your fathers. Go. This is yours. They spied out. What do they come back with? Ten of them said, listen, the land is great. These aren't camps. And these aren't small people. These are the giants. And we went into all of that last week. Only two of them stood by what God had said. Wait a minute. God said that's ours. Let's go take it. But 10 of them built fear in them, and so much so that they wanted to choose another leader for themselves to return to Egypt. 
All they wanted to do was go back to Egypt. As they're wandering the wilderness, we're hungry. Why did you bring us out here to starve to death? What does God do? Provides manna. Man, we're thirsty. Why did you bring us out here to die from this? What does God do? Brings water from a rock. God promised, and he did. Was his people faithful? No, not even a little. You see, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, were looking at what God had said. And as a result of everything that God had done, they knew that he was faithful to his word. And no matter what was in front of them, they could go in and take it. But the people didn't believe. You see, this is what Jesus was reading. He's getting the beginning from the end. And most of us are standing up there as we're reading this. And we're like, man, if that was me, I'd have been Joshua. I'd have been Caleb. Probably not. Because it's easy to sit back and look at this judgmental and be like, you idiots. It's no different than if, man, if I'd lived at the time of Christ, I'd have known he was Jesus. I'd have known he was the Messiah. Maybe. Maybe not. It's easy to talk a big game. But when we are to walk into something that God has promised, whatever that is, that is when we find out where we truly are. What we truly believe. Where the rubber meets the road. We can say whatever we want. I guarantee you, if you ask those ten spies, is God faithful to his word? They would have said yes. So then why not this time? They went into hiding. There's two viewpoints. What God said, what I see. Let's look at another example of this. Remember, and this is what I want you to get. This is what young Jesus is reading. He's hearing these stories. This is his history, his people's history. He's only a couple thousand years apart from some of these events that took place. We're going to go over to 2 Samuel, or excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 17. You guys know this story, okay? This is nothing new. This is David and Goliath. Let me preface this, okay? Are you ready for this? There is no Goliath in your life. I don't care what you're facing. It does not work as a football analogy. It doesn't work for whatever it is you have to overcome. Do you know why? Because you don't have a 10-foot tall giant standing in front of you looking to kill you. There is no moral to the story here except what? God's faithfulness. Let's look at this. 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies together to battle and were gathered in Sokah, which belongs to Judah. They encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side with the valley between them. So get this. Did Israel go to battle, prepared for war? Yes, they did. They're in battle array. You've got the Philistines on one mountain. You've got them on the other And the valley in between. So think of it like this. We'll put this in Rockport term, okay? Because you realize that our downtown is the valley. You got a hill on the left and a hill on the right. So depending on which side you're on, we're gonna I live on the hill on the left. Amy Meineke lives on the hill on the left. So that's the Israel side. We're the good side. All right. Anybody else lives on the other side? I'm sorry. You're doing okay. We're we're gonna you're gonna be uh, grafted in with us. So verse four. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. Do you guys know how heavy that is? About 125 pounds. That's heavy. Okay? And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, which is about 17 pounds. That's the, the spearhead. So what does that mean? You've got to be kind of big and kind of strong to be able to manhandle any of this stuff. And a shield bearer went before him. And then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel to this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now let me stop for a moment. 
Because you have to understand something here. The way we picture this is what we learned in like children's church and perhaps veggie tales, depending on how old you are or if you have grandchildren. Okay? Now, neither one of those is correct. Because what happens here is not that uncommon. Because the two armies are separated, and they would choose a representative from each army, in some cases, and it was a winner-take-all. And there was a little bit of an agreement, I guess, where, you know, it's kind of like in the uh, early days of the American history where you didn't shoot the officers, right? Am I saying that right? There was kind of like this rules of war, terms of engagement, however you want to say it, where you just didn't do that, and people obeyed them. It's the same thing here. This wasn't uncommon. So this wasn't a one-off thing where they would choose a war. Now, under normal circumstances, okay, fine. We'll send out our best guy. But our best guy is like half the size of their best guy. This isn't going to end well. And they know it. That is why they are dismayed and greatly afraid. Because the net result of this is now we are in servitude to these people. So when Goliath said, I defy the armies of Israel, who is he defying? He's ultimately defying the God of Israel. You're going to see this later. And he knows this. Now, Saul, being the leader, should have done what? But God said, so we will go. Right? Did he? No. Let's go on. Verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of, Beth- of Bethlehem, Judah. Whose name, uh, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. The man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. Now the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to battle were Eliab the firstborn, next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he went out there frequently, but he would come back to take care of the sheep. He's watching what's going on. And you Again, it's kind of weird to think about this, but in this term, it's kind of like the little brother wants to see what's happening, be where the action is. Because it wasn't like they didn't have these massive cannons and, and machine guns that they could send from a long ways away. It was bows and arrows, and there was a term of engagement that was taking place. So verse 16, and the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Came out twice a day for 40 days. Do you guys realize how many times 40 days is used throughout Scripture? You should really look into that. Okay? Remember, there is no such thing as a coincidence in the Bible. Everything is there with intentionality. So for 40 days, he comes out every morning and every evening. Then Jesse, uh, verse 17, said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of the dried grain and, and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Eli fighting with the Philistines. So there was some fighting that was going on. So he sends David, take these to your brothers, take these cheeses to whom? Their bosses, okay? Now is that maybe, see, bribe him? Like, hey, can you lead my sons towards the back? I don't know. Verse 20, so David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, uh, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brother. Then, as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them, and all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him... The king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. How many of y'all are going after Goliath just to get out of taxes? Can I get an amen? So David shows up, he sees what's going on, he runs to the front lines, and he hears what Goliath says. And what does he watch? The armies of Israel, including his brother, freaking out. And then they say, Whoever goes up against him, here's what the king's going to give him. These are all good things. Verse 26, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach for Israel? He's like, can you, can you repeat that? Like, one more, can I get this in writing somewhere? Watch what he says. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now here's the thing. What is David's mindset? David's mindset is that he's not coming against just us. We are the army of the Lord. And he's attacking God. And he knows what God has said and what God has promised. He is not moved by that. And as a result of that, what does he get? Lots of really good stuff, especially no taxes. Verse 27, and the people answered him in this manner, saying, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his older brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. He's accusing him of being arrogant. You just came down to watch this. David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And his people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul. And he sent for him. Then David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, David is expected to be in that early teen years, that 13 to 16 years old range, like pretty young. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, it caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Now here's the thing. Did all of the people of Israel have the same promise from God? Absolutely. Was God's promise unique to David? No. Could any one of them stepped in there and had the same result that David will? Because we know how this ends. And the answer is yes. David didn't have a special anointing or a special power or anything like that. What David had is God's word. And God is faithful to his word. And not only that, but he had experienced in life being faithful to his word. And he knew what God would do. Because you don't come against the armies of the living God. Only one of them truly believed what God has said. How do you know what somebody truly believes? How they act. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. You can say whatever you want, but when the rubber meets the road, in the moment of crisis, whatever's going on, whether it's personal in your life or we're facing a national or worldwide crisis, doesn't matter. What you believe will be shown on how you act. So look what he says. Verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor. And he put a bronze helmet on his head. And as he clothed him with the coat of mail, David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk. For he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Now I'm going to stop there for a minute. We always have this picture of David just not being big enough. You know, like the, the stuff was too big. And that may be true. We don't know that for sure. What you need to understand is when armor was made, it was made specific to the person. When he says, I, ha- I can't wear this because I have not tested it, means that I have never tried to use this. Therefore, now's not the time to experiment. Okay? That's what he's getting at. Now look at verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's bag, and a pouch which he had, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. Now, I'm going to like kick over a sacred cow here, so you're going to have to be, bear with me for a moment. David went and picked out for himself five stones. How many people was he battling? He's battling one. Now, what have you heard preached? He just wasn't sure if he had enough faith, so he took some backups, just in case. Okay, This is stuff that has been preached for years and years and years and years. Now, When you become a student of Scripture, you begin to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and you start to look for answers, and sometimes there are things that are found in other parts of Scripture that may give you a clue. So I cannot say what I'm about to show you definitively, but I think it's a pretty good shot. And what I'm going to show you is that while Goliath was the only one that was there that day, he had four other brothers. 
If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 21, I'm going to start in verse 15. It says, when the Philistines were at war again with Israel, David and his servants went with him down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi Benob, who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who were bearing a new sword, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You should go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now it happened afterward that there was again a battle with the Philistine at Gob. And Sabiche, the Hushathite, killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again there was a war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanah, the son of Jerah, Oregon, uh, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And yet again there was a war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was born to the giant. So when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Where were they born to? The giant in Gath. Where was Goliath from? Gath. Goliath had four brothers. So David plan wasn't as simple. Yeah, I'll take out Goliath today, and then I'm going after his whole family. That's confidence. It's not a lack of faith. You guys get that? What did we do? We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Okay? Second Chronicles 20 also references, if you're taking notes, that way you know. So here he is. He picked up his five stones. Now let me tell you one other thing that we often don't understand. We look at this. He's just got this little sling. He's just a little guy. You know, how can he take out a giant? I want you to read this, and I'm going to show you something here that we know. Verse 41, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 70, verse 41. So the Philistine came and began drawing near David. And the man who bore the shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. And he, for he was only a youth. He was ruddy and good looking. So that was interesting. I mean, maybe Goliath was ugly. We don't know. He was jealous. So the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? that you come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So now we see what's going on here. You see, this is a spiritual thing. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give you the carcasses of the, uh, to the camp, of the camp of the Philistine, to the birds of the air, and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. What is he putting his faith in? Not the rocks. Not the sling. But you need to understand something. This was a weapon used by the tribe of Benjamin often. In fact, it was a a weapon used in war. This wasn't David and this is all he had. Don't think of Dennis the Menace with his slingshot. These guys used these and they were well trained. They say that they could sling a rock over 100 miles an hour and be accurate from 100 yards away. So do you think he was trained? This wasn't happenstance, folks. He was trained with this. He had been trained, but he was, wasn't putting his reliance in this sling. This guy came against God, and God will deliver you into my hands. Was he just talking? Do we see what he truly believed? Not by what he said, but by what he did. It wasn't the picking out of the stones. It wasn't just his willingness to set up. up. Watch what happens. Verse 48. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Did he believe that this guy was going to die? Absolutely. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. And he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. So that the stone sank into his forehead. And he fell on his face to the earth. He took him down. Did he kill him in that moment? We don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Their translation of the Bible could go either way. Doesn't matter. He's down for the count. There was not a lot of places on anybody that was in armor that was open. And he finds the one spot. He's accurate with this. 
So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. That's the part they left out of Veggie Tales. That would have been spectacular. Could you imagine they took, because it was a big cucumber, put him in a salad shooter and like made dinner? That would have been weird. I don't know. Sorry. Squirrels with knives, guys. That's how my head works, okay? He ran towards him. He knocks him down. And he takes his own sword and cuts off his head. Now, this is awesome. Again, when you get it in real life. And that would have been great. But watch what happens. Verse 52. uh, Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out with his sheath to kill him, cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road of Sharim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. So look who's suddenly brave. Then they put the children of Israel, or then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistine, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So he kept his armor. So he's walking around with the head of Goliath. What a keepsake. When Saul, verse 55, Saw David going out against the Philistine. He said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And he said, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He's carrying around the head of Goliath. I just think that's awesome and would have made Veggie Tales so much cooler. But I mean, think about that. David was never wavering based on God's promise. You and I will never face a Goliath. We will face spiritual battles. We will face things on this world. We will never face a Goliath. We will never stand there in a moment where we're having to worry about a giant coming and killing us. But our faith is tested by many, many other things. And how do we know where we are in our belief of what God has said and our trust and what he will do? It can't be if he works in mysterious ways because we don't know what to expect. Was David expecting this? Yes. There was no doubt in his mind because he had defied the armies of the living God. God will deliver you into my hand this day. There was no doubt. We know where we are based off of what we do. The things of this world need to get small in our lives. Small. And I'm running out of time. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, here's the thing, folks, and this is what you've got to get, is that when it says set your mind on things above where Christ is, That's where we are. We are seated at the right hand. But our mind is always focused on the things on the earth, the things we see right now. We're focused on what we see, not on what God has said. And as a result, we get results based off of that. So when God said certain things, we must believe them. And if we don't, it is reflective in our actions. And so just like David, nobody had the guts to go in there. And fight this guy. Even though God said that that land is yours and I will give it to you. Nobody in the camp of Israel had the guts to go into the promised land because it was full of giants. Except for two. Nobody believed what God had said. Would they have said they did? Absolutely. Had they experienced God's goodness and faithfulness? Absolutely. But did it move them? No. They talked a big game. Just like many of us do today. You see, we have got to stop talking. We have to start being. We are the fullness of God in Christ. On this earth, we are His representative. I'm going to cut this short and I will pick this up next week. But let me show you a couple verses. 
There's a couple things here. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What are the things? The things are the financial things of this earth. We seek God. We seek His righteousness, and our needs are met. We don't worry about it. It doesn't mean we don't work. We don't worry about it because God is our provider. Were they worried about food in the wilderness? Yeah. Did God provide? Yes. It might be manna, and you might get tired of it. God will provide. Look at Mark chapter 10. Verse 23, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again to them and said, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? Now, why were they astonished? Because in that system there, the more money you had, the more priority you got in the synagogue, in the temple. That is why there's so much talk about, like, don't worry about who's got this ring or that robe, be humble, all that other stuff. Those who trust in riches, are they trusting in God? No. Why was it hard for a rich man? Because they didn't need God. They had everything met. Why is it hard for Americans to truly be devoted to God? Because no matter what happens in life, our needs are met. Because if we can't do it, the government will. And while we may think that's a good thing, it is not. Because it puts our reliance upon a man-made structure and not upon God himself. Verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I showed you guys that last week. The eye of the needle was a small door inside of the gate. And for a camel to get through it, he'd have to get down on his knees and take everything off of him. And they were pack houses that were carrying all this stuff. And they'd have to remove everything for him to shimmy through the door because the door is small. And if you were more concerned about your stuff, then stay out. Verse 26, and they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, well, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, with, uh, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Is that true? Absolutely. I want to show you this, and I'm going to end here. We'll pick this up next week. Matthew chapter 13. You see, what we have today in our country, in the system of which we grew up under, is that we come to Christ because we're in a crisis. And we get emotional support. And we're looking for not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us and will continue to do for us. And it is very carnal in nature, not immoral carnal, but carnal in nature that it is meeting a need. I mean, you've heard this before. I, I, you know, I don't like that church anymore because I don't like the songs they play. You know, I don't like the color that they painted carpet. I mean, she was telling me this last week, and I hope you mind to share this story because I'm going to share it anyway. You don't live here. What are you going to do to me? Um, that, you know, when her dad had taken over the church, you know, some of the stuff was pretty out of date. And somebody had painted clouds on a ceiling in like a children's classroom. And it was kind of hokey looking and it needed freshen up. So they painted it. People got mad and left. That's crazy, right? Because who doesn't need more clouds on their ceilings? But that's the kind of stuff that happens. It's, it's, it's carnal in nature. Well, that guy preaches too long. Or he doesn't preach enough. Or I don't feel goosebumps when I'm there. Or whatever the case may be. There's a million reasons. It is all carnal in nature. That's what we do. That's where we are. But in other parts of the world... When you give your life to Christ, it literally may cost you everything because you are forsaking your past. You're forsaking perhaps your family. You're forsaking all these other gods. And now you're coming to the one true God. And with that, it costs you something. It doesn't cost you anything to enter in, but it will cost you everything. Look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. There are two examples as Jesus is teaching in parables. Look at this, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and he hid, and for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, here's the thing. you got to understand, put this in mindset of a first century Jew who would be hearing this. They're sitting there, Jesus is saying, the owners of the land did not work the land. The servants of the owners of the land worked the land. And as he was going, it was not uncommon for them to be looking for treasure because they believed that this stuff was around. And so as they were going, he finds it, and he hides it, and he goes and gets rid of everything he has so that he can own the hidden treasure. He's not interested in the field. He's interested in what the field holds. Everything he had, he gave up to get this one thing. Look at the next part, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and he sold all that he had, and he bought it. 
What were they willing to give up to get this one thing? The answer, everything else. He said the kingdom of heaven is like. What do you have to forsake in where we are to come to Christ? Nothing. We don't have to forsake our, our riches. And y'all, we're all rich. Even if you're not rich by this standard in America, to the rest of the world, you are. If you own a vehicle, you're richer than 44% of the world. It can be a rust bucket beater. And you're richer than 44% of the world. That's We've got to get this perspective. I was talking to the pastor of the Lutheran Church who just got back from Kenya. He went on a mission trip, first time he's ever gone overseas. And I mean, he was telling me, he's like, I just was blown away. He said, it's so different there because we talk about like the inconvenience of getting to church. And some of you guys drive from a long ways away, and we're, we appreciate that. But he talk, he's talking to this family that was there in Kenya who walked 12 miles that day to come to church. And when it was over, they were going to walk 12 miles home. Now think about that. Would we do that? Probably not. Some of us don't want to drive 12 miles. Some of us may not physically be able to walk 12 miles. I'm just saying. You see, here it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like this pearl of great price. These people gave up everything to get what was there. We don't do that. When we talk about the rich man that comes to Jesus, he says, get rid of everything. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. Knowing that that will make it where you can't follow me. You won't follow me. And the guy was disheveled. He didn't want to. Jesus didn't chase him down and give him a payment plan and you just get rid of it and you'll be okay. You either are or you aren't. We don't want to give up anything to follow Christ. You see, what I'm trying to get us to understand, and we'll pick this up next week, is that we need to understand what God has done for us. And while it cost us nothing, it ultimately should cost us everything. Because suddenly, I am no longer for myself. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Those are not stepping stones to righteousness. Those are a result of the change that has taken place in my life. I no longer am fulfilling the fruit of the flesh because the change that is transforming me, I am fulfilling the fruit of the Spirit. I'm a completely different person. That's what we're talking about. It's being His imager and representative. We don't try to do certain things. We just be who we've been created to be. Amen. So we're going to take communion right now. And if you don't mind, Rachel, if you come on up and just play behind me. And we're going to have her do one more song for us because she's here and she's incredible. But this is so important. Because, again, this is another thing that we often take lightly. But Jesus was pretty serious. You see, it was during the Passover meal, the Seder. And this is the last one. He says, I've been so anxious for this moment. And they had a ritual that they would go through. In fact, we've done Seder meals here. And you've kind of seen that act. So you can see how Christ was fulfilling all this stuff. You can see it. And it's pretty powerful. But in this case, he changes it. Because he takes that bread. And there's the afikoman and the hiding of the bread. All that other stuff. We're not getting into that. And he breaks it. And he looks at them. And for the first time in their life, they're hearing something different. Their entire life, every year they did this. He says, this is my body that's broken for you. Every time you do it, remember me. Not remember Egypt, where it all started. Remember me. Let's partake together. And then he took the third cup, the cup after supper, the cup of redemption. And these are words that every Jew had been waiting on. This is the new covenant, the one that Ezekiel 36 had promised. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. You see, this is God's power. This is what His Son has done. We often take this as some sort of religious practice or exercise, but it's so much more than that. Because God is faithful to His Word. Do you guys realize that when you think about this, that they had waited for thousands of years 
for Messiah to come. And in a moment, he was there with them. And then they rejected him. The leaders rejected him, would not declare him to be Messiah. And we forget that. We just take it for granted. We're like, well, yeah, we're in, we're here. We need to be faithful to his word as he is. So let's stand up and let's worship. What are we playing? First song. We sing a song to bring you glory. We lift your holy name on high. The Lord our God is strong and mighty. We praise the name of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Open up the ancient doors. Jesus Christ. 